The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. My guest today is an award-winning composer, producer, and public speaker, dedicated to catalyzing social change and individual healing through the creation of inspiring, music-infused resources and events. His passion for the humanizing role that music and the arts can play in society's institutions, healthcare, religion, education, philanthropic, and corporate cultures consistently inflames the hearts and minds of his audiences through media projects, keynote presentations, training sessions, and performances around the globe. He's enjoyed a highly successful career for nearly 30 years, having received numerous Emmys and ASCAP awards that have acknowledged his work in film, television commercials, and CD production. He is also founder of the Wisdom of the World organization that continues this work to heal, empower, and connect us to the best part of ourselves. Gary Malcolm, welcome to you today. Great being here. Oh, it's so nice to have you here. Your work is quite profound, and I, I have looked um, at your biography and the work that you're, you're involved in now, and it, it is wonderful. I'd like to go back, if I may, before we, we get into the, the real in-depth part of the program, at your life, where you came from originally, and how you began thinking not about music but also becoming very spiritually aware of of, of the, the way that you approach this. I grew up in the suburbs of New York, um, a dysfunctional but loving Jewish family um, with from uh, the son of Russian immigrant. And uh, when my mother was picking me up from playing piano. Uh, oh, sorry, my picking up, <laughs> sorry, when my mother was picking me up from a friend's house, she found me playing the piano, and she had never saw me play piano before, and the friend's mother said, I didn't know he was studying, and I was playing melody and harmony, and I was playing what I heard, and I remembered being fascinated with this thing, black and white keys, and suddenly I could instantly find what I wanted to hear. And uh, she said, I didn't know he was studying piano either. And she said, better get the kid a piano teacher, you know. Um, so I was literally moth to flame at around four and a half and found it to be extremely powerful in an environment where there was, you know, like Woody Allen environments where the people are interrupting each other and grabbing food for each other in the typical Jewish family where it provided an experience for me, a sanctuary where I could engage in self-soothing. 
And what I learned, though, is that I was, as I was soothing myself, I was also engaging in soothing the, the family system because I noticed when I started playing piano, the house started to chill out. People started to feel more relaxed. And so I think there was a Pavlovian association with music and a sense of dropping in. How did that change your relationship with your parents? You know, I don't, um, I don't know how it changed my relationship to my parents. But I think that from a very early age, I sensed that my parents were so different that I, I found that music found, gave me a way to ameliorate differences and to create harmonious bridges. So when I played the piano, it seemed to make everyone feel more compatible and more able to communicate and kind of appeal. It appealed to people's best sense of themselves. Music seemed to elevate. When you say that they were different, are you thinking that they were different or that you were different? No, they were different from each other. They were opposites, my parents. And I think on a certain level, the roots of my desire to become a global ambassador of peace through music, which is one of my you know, stated goals in my life, is um, probably because I watched my parents come, one very identified around the head and, and one another, my mother very identified around the heart. And I found a way to try to mitigate these very, very different personalities and uh, try to make sense of the differences. What about yourself when you began becoming very involved in music and in the piano? How were you changing? Well, you know, you're self-absorbed in a way that you don't even know as a child. But I did have this one very seminal... I remember playing the piano and endlessly feeling like my mother used to bribe some friends to play with me because she wanted me to get out of the house because I loved the piano so much. And I wasn't the typical boy playing softball. You know, I was playing the piano. I was very sensitive and I loved Broadway musicals. And I remember an experience when I was about 11 years old. I was sick with a cold. And I was watching, in New York, they had this thing called the Million Dollar Movie, where they played the same old movie every day the same time. So I was watching this movie, it was a Monday, and it was The Miracle Worker, starring Patty Duke and Anne Bancroft. It was, you know, a phenomenal old movie. And at the time, I was watching the scene, I don't know if you're familiar with the film, but I was watching the scene where after endless attempts to try to break through this, this blind and deaf world of Helen Keller, Annie Bancroft, um, Annie Sullivan broke through at the water pump. It's a very famous scene. And finally, Helen Keller responded, acquiesced to the, uh, learning Braille. This scene was so profound. Early, early on, as they were leading up to the breakthrough moment, there was this high, high string that was coming in, preparing you for this transformational moment when Annie Sullivan actually succeeded in breaking through to the consciousness of this you know, petulant young girl. And I was so moved, not only by this woman who 
had a profound effect on actually changing this young, you know, Helen Keller's life. But I was moved because I was musically tuned in enough to recognize that I was being manipulated to drop into my heart and feel the content of this thing that was going on on the screen. It was such an epiphanous moment for me. I, I, my mother walked in, I was sobbing, not only for this plight of Helen Keller, but for the beauty of this transfer of information and the power of music to help me understand on an emotional level what was actually really going on. How old were you then? About 10 years old. And I remembered making believe I was sick for the next three days so I could listen to the score. And that's when, on the second day when I heard the score, I decided, I want to be a film composer. I want to be able to learn how to subliminally create music that will help people assimilate and understand the emotional and spiritual subtext of content, in this case, film. So at that stage, do you think that you were going through an awakening? Without question, I, I was so tuned into music. I had been playing piano like six years at the age of 10 or 11, and... I think I was tuned into the language of music in a way that most people wouldn't even have been aware of that string line coming in, but I was intimately aware of it. Can you define that for me? Are you saying tuned in in a lyrical flow fashion or, <laughs> or a deeper fashion than that? Gosh, I, you know, uh, I think that I, I remember the experience as being the first time that my heart cracked open for the human condition for because I never thought about anyone else's pain before but when I saw this moment there was like many things going on at once on many levels how would you define that are you talking about a sense of empathy yeah yeah so here I was this typical self-centered 10 year old right but 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 the quality of all of the tiles of this mosaic experience that allowed me to empathically feel what it was like for Helen Keller, for Annie Sullivan, and for the whole remarkable impossibility of making a difference in another person's life who's suffering. It all kind of came together, and aesthetically, I understood something about the role that music had in making our lives, lubricating our lives through the difficult passages of our life. It it was a seminal moment for me that really was a touchstone. Whenever I look back on when I wanted, when I became, when when I birthed the desire of becoming a film composer, it was really about how can I make the biggest difference in people's lives in a, sublim- in a subliminal but elegant way? And that's when it started, was when I saw that movie. Were you also looking at the methodology of, of story structure as well as music, or is it purely the strength and dynamics of music itself? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I actually pulled this section from... Um, and played it at keynote speeches that I give because I wanted, everyone knows, when I mention this scene, everyone nods and says, I know that moment. Um, I think, I literally think the sheer human power of that transfer of information from one person, an L, you know, someone helping another, which is at the heart of, I often give this talk for healthcare providers and I share this scene. I think that as a 10-year-old, I was just completely, the, the, I grokked it at a level that I couldn't I, dissect its pieces, you know. What were the following 10 years to do for that? You, because you're talking about a catalyst and awakening that, that happens very young. Mm-hmm. Where are you going now into your teens and early adulthood? Um, I, I discovered 
classical music. Now, I had the unique gift of not having parents that knew very much about what to do with a talented son. So they let me do whatever I wanted for hours and hours at a time. I had friends who were so burned out by being pushed to practice in classical genres from the earliest age that it, it really snuffed out any desire for them to be inventive and as a co as a creator but i was inventing and arranging and composing from the age of 5 so when uh, i went to junior high and i saw these amazing pianists in 7th grade playing mozart and bach and beethoven i went what's that cuz i had my my training was pop music broadway improvisation arranging jazz all these things i'd come at it purely like almost like if you drop me in a forest i'd came at it through what i what i heard and what I wanted to hear. But then I found classical music and that's when I studied vociferously. I, I, you know, I was just practicing and I really wanted to learn the mastery of Bach, the brilliance of Mozart, the beauty of the depth of Beethoven. The, you know, so I really did a very strong entry into like wanting to become Leonard Bernstein. He was my hero. You know, I wanted to be a composer and a conductor, and I wanted to, I wanted to make a difference, like his mass, which makes such a commentary on human experience. You know, when you transition out of the security of the family, what occurs to you then, looking back on it? How did you change again now you've lost that security? Well, one thing, I went to this music camp called Interlochen Arts Academy. I actually went to this summer camp. And it was, without question, the most profound, life-changing experience for me because I was amidst other people who were the creme de la creme of the country. And I was a strange bird because I was a, a, an oxymoronic uh, type. I was a, an extroverted composer, which is an oxymoron. So I ended up becoming the lead in all the musicals while writing a piece, writing composition. And Aaron Copeland took me under his wing that summer, and 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 I spent a few weeks with him. And I was then the, I was the lead in the musical while I was studying composition. I was a very strange combination. Looking back, I realized that I, it, I was never the kind of composer that like felt like I must compose, you know, very, in, instead of internally driven, music for me was about relationship and community and connecting. Was that ever compromised? Did you ever have challenges? Because you, you move into that commercial world. I, I was talking to Ali Willis, the great songwriter recently. Oh, I love her And work. she said she's, she's already, she was pulled back into a commercial prospect where money it, it governs it. it it's almost like the hollywood with films you you don't have the creativity anymore you have the bean counters now it didn't that didn't happen to me that early so i was real i was really purely interested in the self-expression at college and they used to pejoratively talk to me like you really should go into film business as a way to say your music is too beautiful for being cool in a university so they, the, in those days in the early 70s if your music wasn't alienating like Schoenberg or Xenoxis or, or you know Music Concrete or all these different things that were meant to be extremely intellectual and standoffish and arm's length you were viewed as lesser you were, and if you were heart-based or beautiful or it created an experience that was about feeling connected, you were looked at, down upon. And I hated that. 
And someone introduced to me the music of India. At a time when I was getting interested in spirituality, someone handed me a book, the autobiography of a yogi and Ram Das, Be Here Now. And I found there was a way to connect with music that wouldn't require me to sell my soul, both either for the the uh, academics, which would mean to do something that was like de rigueur, you know, the you know very complex intellectual music, or to go all the way into pop music, which I wasn't prepared to do at that time. So I was introduced to the music of Ali Akbar Khan, one of the greatest Indian classical masters. And um, I had this profound experience listening to his music as a college student and literally said, point me to where he is. And so for three, I went to his school and gave up Western music. And for three to four years, I had an experience of without doubt the most pure immersive experience in one of the oldest musical systems in the world and it 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 taught me that my language was music more than any other language that it was devoid of approval and and cultural and commercial success if i had the benefactor i would have spent the rest of my life being an indian classical musician it was that pure and then around three years into this, I started to think about, my, you know, with my parents not supporting me anymore, I was supporting myself through this. Um, I started to think, well, is there much demand for a Jewish Indian classical vocalist in the marketplace? <laughs> and that's when I reacquainted myself with my dreams of becoming a film composer. And that fall from grace you talk about commercially is happened about 15 years down the line when I, when I, I, I got so into defining myself by my awards and my success with film and television that it that that happened further down the line, um, and that's another story. <laughs> so was that a compromise? I mean, was there any compromise at, at all after that period? You know, uh, uh, what I learned, I, I, I jokingly say that middle age is a very inconvenient time to have a starving artist phase. <laughs> And what happened to me is that I had a phenomenally successful early career where, like, literally at 30 years old, I'm conducting orchestras in Rome and London with feature films, with major motion pictures and doing television and getting Emmy Awards and stuff. And so from the age of, like, 29 to, um, I don't know, like, for about 15, 17 years, all the way till 98, um, I was extremely successful you know and really loved making the big checks and having the huge home and the going to you know hollywood a lot and recording orchestras different places for film projects but i lost my soul because i started to define who i was by how i was seen by the world and not by my expression not by my capacity to express myself what was the methodology then at that stage i i, I know that and we're we're moving on but unsolved mysteries for example is the methodology in creating that music opposed to the way that you would like to do it yeah no i 
that was the epitome, even though I'm very grateful to the producers for being loyal to me, and I, it was a 15-year job, which is unheard of in television. <laughs> I mean, the royalties were un unbelievable, and it was a great experience. Still, I had gone into music thinking that I could prove to my father that I would, you know, I always wanted to prove to my dad that I could be successful in a career that he never understood. And so the way I did that was I, with a vengeance, tried to be as successful as I could, and I got there, you know? What, what does it feel like looking back on that now, though? Do you, do you wish that you hadn't had to prove that? No, no, no. I, you know, I, I live with no regrets. I think that we all evolve in a, in a way that you're looking back it's a perfect, you know, it all unfolds the way it's supposed to. I think I had to prove to myself and to my world that I was capable of being successful. I think that what happened was that I finally just reached a point. I'll never forget it. I was doing the album um, for the first time, an album that was purely for aesthetic reasons called The Music of the Great Smoky Mountains in 1996. And I was in the studio, and it wasn't a work for hire for profit or profile. It was purely an artistic experiment to see do I have in me something other than a work for hire hack you know and I'd been seeing myself as a guy that was just phenomenally good at giving directors and commercial agencies and all that what they wanted but I was very unhappy with the fact that I wondered am I going to die not knowing that I ever have a self-expression and I always felt like my music was always about connecting it to, in some way to, to meaning. Um, and just to go back a little bit, throughout this career that started very strong in 1981 and, and went to 1998 very strong, the only time, looking back, that I ever felt like when I went to bed at night, I went, this is what I came here for. Looking back was when it was about projects for the environment, for raising money for cancer, for helping children who are sick. The pro bono social venture, you know, leaving the world a better place projects where I made no money. Is that not an irony in <laughs> itself? <laughs> well, I, you know, I kept on, it was a cognitive dissonance, you know, David, because I went to bed at night thinking, there's something wrong with this picture. I'm truly happy having just made a difference using my talent in some way that would help people. But you can't make, support your family that way. You can't make a living that way. And everybody said, yeah, good luck, you know. Well, Everything crashed at, 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 in 1998. When a year after, two years after I did the Smoky Mountains, and I was in the uh, in the studio, this light bulb went off as I was feeling fulfilled artistically. And it's so ironic because most people start that way, but for me, I was in the salt mines from the moment I, I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to prove that I was going to be successful. And there I was in the studio, and I remembered the tears started falling down my face, and I went. You mean I could actually express myself? I could actually have my soul expressed? I could actually contribute to people's sense of peace? And I went, whoa. And that was at a very inconvenient when, age. And when was this? 1996. So that was uh, 14 years ago. I'm 57, so about 40 years old. I know that in 1991 you lost your father. How did that change your life? It really was the root, the experience of watching him die with the nobility that he died with, which was so profound, the way he did it. He gave me the gift of being so present and loving and caring and accepting during his dying process. 
I'd like to say that, you know, one of the greatest gifts that we can give one another is to face our fears of mortality early on so that we can show our loved ones how to, how to die. You and I share something. My, my father died like that in 98, and, and my Chloe was born six months later. Exactly. My daughter was born six months after my dad died. And I, I think there's, that you hear that all the time. I, I feel like that was the, the, that as well as my daughter being born where she almost died at birth. Um, you know, you live long enough, David, where you get entrained or you, get, you understand that if you live long enough, um, the pain that occurs from the losses that naturally happen in life um, make you who you are. And the losses that started to happen um, informed the cataclysm or the or the chrysalis, the, the becoming into this humanitarian artist that I I feel like I'm stepping into or that I'm a student of, you know. Tell me about uh, Mosaic. Um, what was the main drive behind that period? Um, Mosaic was established really as originally as it, I, I originally created Mosaic to think would it, could it be possible to create a me- media music production company that was focused on generative, environmental, social venture projects? And er- it was 1998, and everyone said, you're going to go broke. And so I, it was my last-ditch effort to um, try to create a music production company that was a reflection of who I became. Um, it still exists as my music production company, but it never... I never um, succeeded in doing that. What happened was that it yielded to the creation of wisdom of the wisdom of the world. So, music mosaic is my conventional music production company for which I'll do scores for documentaries and 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 you know um, conventional projects. Different world. Yeah. Would you suggest when when you produce this work during that music time that back in 1998? It was a completely different America, different world, completely different to the way it is now. Not only was it a different world, but I was in a lot of pain because I saw the role that media could have in making it, making, uh, it was a very different world, no question, but I early on felt that media colluded in the problems that were happening then. And when I look at the problems then, they were minuscule compared to what they are now. And, and, and certainly the media is even worse off now. I know. No, the fracturing and the way the media has contributed to, and, you know, the, the glut of, of media and technology that is actually conspiring to... What, what I've often said, David, is that I feel that where we are now is that our capacity to be fully present and have a full, holistic, engaged attention with our hearts and our spirits and our minds focused in the way that we're interacting right now is actually an endangered capacity on the human on the planet. And I feel like the the plethora of ah, multitasking and media and all the ways that media is being used to distract our, our, our attention spans and, and you know, lower them and all that, you know, lower our ability to pay attention, to me is part of what's creating the incoherence, the chaos, the, well, the, the uh, oil spills, etc. And you can add into that the corporate mansion. You can add into that the manipulation of consumerism 
Absolutely. as dominating our lifestyles now. Absolutely. That's my, all part and parcel of that that massive problem that we face. Yeah, my, my mentor, Lynn Twist, the founder of the Pachamama Alliance, Lynn and Bill Twist, they say that we've become consumers, not citizens. And um, <laughs> it's a profound shift that's happened right under our nose, right under our midst without us knowing, noticing it. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, what happened for me in 98, which was, th there was a fall. I had a major accident, um, a, literally a, an, an accident in a bicycle with my daughter. I shattered my wrist in 18 pieces, four ribs fractured, 40 stitches in my nose and my chin. And basically it was this huge wake up call. And, it, you know, looking back in my life, I won't tell you the whole story, but it was it, there were signs before it happened that something was going to happen because I was trying to make my my career that was defined around externals, my successful music career, work in partnership with this new sense of feeling like I what I wanted in my heart more than anything, David, was I wanted to use my music and my ability to make a contribution to making this world a better place. And with every night that I went to bed with that prayer, it seemed like everything got more and more difficult. <laughs> and then I had an accident and it shattered my wrist and they didn't know if I'd ever play piano again. And my wife left me and everything, everything that meant anything to me except for my daughter was taken away from me in July of 1998. How important was your daughter at that stage? It's a strange question, but I no, it's not strange. It's 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 caught my breath because I it, what I what what I thought of the moment that you asked that question was the moment she started to crown when she was being born, was this phenomenal experience that every parent understands. I think where I just went, I will die for this child if necessary, and it was that love kept me so strong around what I needed to focus on when this divorce and this family got broken up. I, and my love and my care for my daughter was the thing that defined me. It was the most important thing to me. So um, that's when the healing from this accident made me curious uh, about this project that I had started called Graceful Passages because I had, I had started it a few months before the accident no accident by the way it was quite coincidental this uh, a companion for living and dying yes now uh, okay so that follows on this period but were there any other influences that brought you to to this project Michael Stillwater a, a pioneer musical healer who had been devoting his life to music to help people through, uh, to mitigate the role of spirituality in one's life. He was an early adopter of music and spirituality, even to the point where I was even a little avoiding him because he was so new agey and I was didn't want to be a new ager, you know. But he came to me um, saying, if I were going to die, the person whose music I'd want to hear would be yours, which was incredibly sweet for him to say. And he had been at the bedside of people who are dying and seeing remarkable results when he'd start to create music that was intentional, environments that were filled with denial, with, you know, you could cut the air with a knife. He would start creating some healing music at the bedside and people would go, you know, accelerate the process of appreciation and forgiveness and invariably it would be a blessing for the family. You talk about oral alchemy. Mm-hmm. Tell me where that comes into that scenario. Well, Michael asked me 
would you engage with me on creating something for people at the end of life? And I had been so touched by what had happened with the near death of my daughter at her birth, with my father, and with the death of a, of a little girl when I was 21 that I was kind of like the godfather of. And all of these things sort of led to this moment. And so we came up with this idea of having him speak directly to someone who had just received a terminal diagnosis. So Michael imagined that he was talking to someone with a terminal diagnosis. And I sat at the keyboard with my string orchestra, sampled orchestra at the keyboard, and I used my film scoring capacities simultaneously while he dropped into a deep, authentic, intimate expression of, himself, of, of this speaking to someone who was with a terminal diagnosis. And when it was done, David, I'll never forget the moment because I just went, has anyone ever dignified authentic, intimate, powerful, you know, presence spoken, excuse me, spoken from the heart with the art of film scoring? Has anyone ever done that before? What if we got famous wisdom keepers and actually scored them with full orchestra um, as if they were motion pictures? And we realized that no one had ever done that before. No, and I, one could say no one was foolish enough to do it. <laughs> but we, I became really intrigued when I started to realize that the human voice, when expressed from the deepest place of authenticity, actually is kind of a hieroglyphic of our soul. It's, it's the expression of who we really are. But, but to create music underneath it, you actually have the capability to make palpable one's emotional and spiritual intent. And that's the power of film score quality music. So that's what oral alchemy is all about. this statement media medicine for the mind is that is that structured in your game plan is that something that is part of that or an extension of it it's completely central and related exactly to what i just described oral alchemy media medicine for the mind entertainment all of that is my response to what and how 
can the tools of beauty, the entrainment tools of film scoring, the beauty of gorgeous time-lapse imagery of nature, what, what are the, what, how can the tools of film and music actually conspire to awaken states of what the, the Heart Math Institute calls coherence? Is there, is there a element of past life nostalgia in that way that you introduce this mix of music and, and voice? Is it something that can connect for people f from a past life? Not overtly, um, but it's fascinating that you ask that. I, I, I like to think, David, that our natural state is a state of coherence, a state of innate connection to our hearts and our spirits and our minds. So in that sense, innately, are we able to connect to the innate beauty of the, our humanity? Then that to me is something that we share with all of our ancestors, past and future, but not literally. No, I don't think that, I, I, that's not my intention. If you If you look at the world today, you look at people today, my goodness me, there are all these pressures you know, that we can quote fear, insecurity, as we did before the program, uh, betrayal, uh, victimization, um, codependency. And people can find that self-awareness. They can find a way to heal themselves, believe in themselves, because that's what we need. Is this music that you are developing, this, this concept, is that a way to create this sense of community awareness that people need, especially in practical terms in our world today? That's a really great comment, great question. I, I think that what, you know, when people say that you can only experience love if you love yourself, or you can only experience a sense of connection with others if you feel connected to yourself, I, my intention in creating this unique amalgam of spoken authenticity and music has to do with helping people drop into states of innate coherence another one way I would say it was deep peace and connection with what remember what of what matters most when one does that david and and my objective is to create this this sense of cognition as well as a, a feeling state that drops people into a sense of what the you know the cerebral cortex the sense of witness within the sense of ah I'm in myself. And that, out of that place of wholeness, community is possible, if that makes sense. You, you talk us to one of those steps uh, by citing media vitamins. Media vitamins. I thought that right. was wonderful. <laughs> well, and our media diet is, is the equivalent of really fast food trash. You know, a lot of us, all of us, consume... Uh, levels of fear in the me in the media that we don't realize that famous phrase garbage in garbage out you know we don't david we don't have yet i think we're just beginning to have tools with the new brain scanning technologies to measure this energy medicine we call media film music television all these things the truth is they're they're forms of energy that affect us that make us feel better or worse. I, I had the great um, privilege to share three programs with the with the amazing uh, Professor Tiller, 
and he talks about this. He says that we have this huge ability by finding ourselves to literally radiate out to anybody around us this physical, almost electromagnetic... Not almost, definitely electromagnetic. That it changes people around you. And it's made me in my life realize that if you adopt this, if you believe in yourself, if you travel every day, every second through your life, the way that you walk, talk, smile, everything that you do, it illuminates people. Absolutely. You know the work of Bruce Lipton and epigenetics and the biology of belief. He's proving biologically that that what's much more powerful than our genetics is <laughs> our belief system around us, you know, the, how we carry ourselves. So honestly, the, 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 the magnificent transformative power of beauty and the use of beauty in media as a way in five minutes or less, which is what our wisdom films are about. We have wisdom films we're launching in September and this idea of combining gorgeous time-lapse images of nature with beautiful music, with cognitive words that kind of wake you up. This alchemy, we're hoping, would be kind of like a five-minute game changer. You know, you look, instead of grabbing a piece of um, pharmacology to soothe you, you actually get an immersive headphone and your iPod or your iPhone or you know whatever mobile me- app mobile media you have and drop into an energy an energetic state of coherence and use the transformative power of beauty to to nourish our hearts and spirits not just our minds that's what wisdom of the world's all about when was it that you learnt that collaboration between music and imagery Well, early. Remember what I said? I fell in love with Broadway musicals and sto- how, the, 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 how stories could be empowered and turbocharged by music. Now, the Broadway musical was like this larger-than-life thing. And then that story I told you about the miracle worker, when I got to see the alchemy of what happens when music subliminally supports a story. And that's when I became voraciously interested in the... the um, the extraordinary things that occur when you combine, you know, I used to, I jokingly say, you know, add music and stir. You know, when you, when you add music and intentional music to certain kinds of uh, um, experiences, whether it's stage or screen or anything, it's remarkable how you can change the context. In fact, I have to tell you something. A very, a fellow of, uh, of major corporations, and he's on the board of, of uh, USC, he actually, in business school, asks his business um, students to change the soundtrack of films. Now, I don't exactly know what it is, but he wants, he wants people to understand viscerally how context dictates the success of any outcome. And he uses film scoring as a technology for understanding that, that context is everything. And especially emotional context is what actually makes things happen or not to the, to the direction that you want it to happen. Um, so I, I think that we have barely scratched the surface of how media and the arts in general could be used in strategic ways to draw people into deeper peak performance, uh, deeper connection with resonance, uh, global communion around differences. I think that... I think that we've only begun to understand that the artist, dare I say, could very well be the shamans of culture rather than the the court jesters. 
And I really believe that that's what the future of the arts is all about. What holds us back in our lives is our fear. And sometimes when you take a very close look, you find out that your fears aren't exactly what you thought they were. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It's our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Very interested in one of your extracts, uh, Marianne Williamson's Our Deepest Fear. Amazing visual, amazing product. How did that come about? How do you look at somebody's vision like that, see what they're doing, and manage to take it up a whole level that I'm sure that she was shocked at herself? I wish I could claim credit for it, and I'll tell you how it is. I'm an audio purist, and I had to be convinced by my team, of my, my wisdomoftheworld.com team, that we live in a visual culture so you need to find visual media ways to deliver the audio that I'm, this audio alchemy, this spoken word and music that I love, right? And I, I a, a copy of Graceful Passages, the, the, this work of, spoken, of, of wisdom keepers talking about death and dying and accepting it, got in the hands of one of the world's finest cinematographers. He, the next Disney nature film on the pollinators is coming up in um, Earth Day of 2011. And Louis Schwartzberg of Blacklight Films got a copy of, uh, of uh, Graceful Passages. And he was in love with it. And he said, do you have anything that isn't about death and dying that I could set to images because I think that there's a feature film here that has to do with your sense of alchemy of spoken word and music. And then he took this thing I had created, purely what, what, what makes me tick, David, is the emotional experience, the fulfillment of the this emotional subtext of content. So I got Miriam Williamson to record this famous phrase that is associated with Nelson Mandela's inaugural, what you fear is not that you're inadequate, but that you're powerful beyond measure. And I got her to speak it in a very particular way. I scored it to music. And he heard that. And he set it to these extraordinary images of earth, uh, time-lapse images of clouds and the earth. And he sent it to me. And at first, I went, what is this? What Does this strengthen the audio or or distract me from hearing you know i didn't even know at first whether it was good but then every time i played it for a friend i went something's going on here that more than meets the eye and i i went back to louis and i said louis there's something going on here that has to do with something like the, the, the tribal part of us that is around a fire, watching the nuances of the crackling fire as you tell a story. There was something very primal. It's almost like that, that going back to that arthurial legend, the, the, that sort of ancient yeah, the, period. Right, you know how people call the, 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 the television set the new, you know, everybody gathering around the fire. Well, there was a trance quality 
that happen when you see time-lapse images of Mother Nature, of the Earth, there is something deeply bonding and comforting and, and primal, prehistoric, I mean, around, around connecting to this bond we have with this place that we call Earth. And so suddenly I went, well, this is a new form. And that's how this idea of the wisdom film and entertainment, we're launching 10 of them in September, actually, thanks to Louis, Louis setting them to images, really. We're working with David Fortney now, also a, a famous cinematographer as well. Looking back um, over your many um, Emmys, how do you feel about that? How, how do you feel about that honor? Is that something that is highlighted in your life, or do you not really think about those so much? I have enormous pride in the fact that I developed a craft. Um, I learned how to orchestrate and conduct and sensate a musical approach in the art of film scoring. I think that film scoring is one of the most under misunderstood and underestimated art forms on the planet today. It's almost like an esoteric art form. Just think about it. You can use the power of texture and rhythm and and timbre and color and melody and harmony and conspire with these tiles, these mosaics, to create a result that makes human beings feel connected profoundly emotionally to content. That's a miracle. And that's what I was talking to earlier about having not just individual awareness and consciousness, but finding this vehicle, if it's through a media uh, opportunity, of creating this mass sense of of common consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, well for me originally it was can I get them to buy more Hidden Valley Ranch dressing? Can I get them to be frightened from unsolved mysteries segments? Can I get them to do something that will be so emotionally powerful that it'll get them to get off their seats and do something, right? But I naturally evolved into the ultimate unsolved mystery which is can I get people to shed the parts of their human experience that are actually unsustainable and impossible to um, maintain if we want to keep this earth a place that we can live in sustainably. If I came to you, one of my great challenges at the moment is the uh, dreadful situation we find in the Gulf. And becoming quite uh, pivotal, I hope, in, in helping people understand the enormity of it and and reshape their lives to be able to put in provisions in, in place for themselves. If I set you the challenge and I said to you, what can you do for all those people, not now, but who are going to be hugely affected by that, that situation? What do you think it, it is that you could create for them in, in a musical way? I, I have a reference point of, some, of one of many things I think that can be done. When 9-11 happened, I was asked to create the one-year commemorative event with a, a phenomenal group of people at the National Cathedral in Washington that was, host, that was actually aired on the BBC. And it was an experience that wasn't about, there was 50 million things, on, you know, talking about the, the sadness and the, and the death and the, and the horror. But what we did was we honored the light that came out of the shadow. We honored the profound tenderness that people became sensitive to around what it took for people to help one another and the gratitude, the, the amount of community 
service entered in as a result of that. What I would do with none with the with the Gulf spill, one of many, because I am working with James O'Dea, the former president of the Noetic Sciences, to create something, a media piece with a prayer that is not a prayer to ameliorate the situation, but to wake us up to the level of responsibility we all share in creating the circumstances under which this spill occurred by participating in the machinery that has allowed us to be addicts of oil that, to the degree that it has pr- pr- produced this event, right? But what I would do first is to find people there who are recognizing these amazing gifts in unsuspecting places out of the horror because to me, it's possible, as horrible as this is, that we can start, rather than freaking out and being absolutely terrified and shocked, we can start to say, okay, how can this motivate us to become more aware of the conditions that created it so that we can create a world for our children that, is, that, that will prevent this from ever happening again? Solutions led. Yeah. And I think that media... If you can turn people away from the shock and the awe and the horror into what does this mean to my children? And if I can feel the ramifications of it and therefore, through media, awaken to the great silver lining of how do I want to be and who do I want to touch and how do I want to live my life to be part of the solutions that will prevent this from ever happening again. Media can do that. And I don't mean necessarily only big movies and television. And I agree with you. I think out of dreadful situations like this, we have the biggest opportunities you could ever believe in. I want to finish off here, and I'm going to ask you. I know that your daughter... If she is to you what my Chloe is to me after going through a similar uh, situation, what is she to you now and where do you place her in your work? Hmm. Because she is clearly the most important thing to you. (laughs) We just had dinner last night together and I told her that the night of her high school graduation, which was a few weeks ago, it was in the home of my ex-wife and with my my ex-wife's husband and Um, And my family and her family were all joined together. And I have a story to tell, David, that has a reference point of what it takes to create peace. And if I could tell you that I had the most horrific and contentious divorce and situation that you would ever imagine, that you'd never think healing was possible. And on the night of my daughter's graduation, we had reconciled so completely that my daughter thanked us for not bifurcating her life. But, but loving each other enough to keep on coming back with communication. My answer to you is that I, um, I know what it takes <laughs> to, to uh, overcome profound, uh, uh, profound violence and war and disconnection and, and uh, struggle because the metaphor I have of the love I had for my child is quite metaphoric to the love we have for our children. And I honestly believe we can overcome anything if we just stay connected to that love. And that's what my daughter represents to me, is a sense of real optimism that we have the ability to change the things that need to be changed. 
Gary Malkin, it's been an extraordinary pleasure today to have you on the programme. I know that we're going to be sharing a lot more of these programs together in the future. It's such a pleasure, David. Thank you. What a comprehensive interview. <laughs> Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this uh, as much as I have. You can gain information on this uh, and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. You can also visit uh, www.wisdomoftheworld.com. I would suggest you do so. Uh, what amazing work uh, that Gary Malkin and his uh, associates are involved in today. You can also download a film at wisdomfilms.com and have it to keep by yourself. Uh, there we are. Gary, thank you so much uh, to our listeners. Uh, wherever you are in this world, I will say good morning, good afternoon and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Mm-hmm.